Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Everything Economics. I am your host Talia Murdoch and would like to begin by acknowledging that we are fortunate to be able to gather on the unceded territory of the Coast Salish people, including the Musqueam, Squamish and Tsleil-Waututh nations where this podcast is recorded. Now, next Monday is Labor Day in Canada, so today I'm going to be doing an episode about Labor Day and labor unions. I want to give a brief explanation of what Labor Day is and when it began here, and then get into the economics of labor unions. Now, this research was challenging. I found a lot of literature that painted labor unions in a negative light as something that reduces company profits and investments, which, while maybe true, is the kind of thing being told from a neoclassical economic and, let's face it, white male perspective, without considering the importance of unions for workers' rights. On the other side of things, I also found papers that focus solely on how labour unions improve conditions for the working class. I'll discuss each and then consider how we have made our way to be a society with low levels of unionisation across the board. Full disclosure and no surprise, I am absolutely pro-union. I do not subscribe to the idea that redistributing company profits more equally across a workforce is a bad thing. I'll be highlighting data that shows that sure, when this happens, investment lowers, but I believe that this is also a legislative and company accountability issue, not a problem caused by labor unions alone. Overtly high corporate salaries can also be cut, you know? So let's get started. Labor Day in Canada is celebrated on the first Monday in September, originally giving workers the chance to campaign for better working conditions or pay. So it's basically a free day off to strike. Its origins go back to 1872, when a demonstration was organized by the Toronto Trades Assembly, protesting the imprisonment of 24 leaders of the Toronto Typographical Union for striking to campaign a nine-hour workday. It's pretty crazy, honestly, both that this happened and the fact that we are still operating under the eight-hour workday, too high and unnecessary. But back in 1872, trade unions were illegal and striking was criminal, a conspiracy against the greater good of the economy. This demonstration, however, gained a lot of public support and those in power could no longer deny the importance of unions for Canadian society. Now, I do want to say it was definitely not just this parade alone that led to the establishment of Labor Day and the legalization of unions, allowing for protected collective bargaining. I am without a doubt certain that there would have been a lot of organizing and activism happening in the background and for years leading up to this event that also led to its success. It's something I have been reminded of a lot in other media I consume lately, that when we are talking about resistance, civil rights, feminisms, protests, and all types of movements, we need to be so careful to not focus on a single event, like that was the only thing that created positive change in society. It is always, always more than one protest, one day, one face, who is responsible for successful reform. Now, this episode is not going to get into the nitty-gritty of how to resist successfully, rather the importance of unions, but I did want to make that point. Nowadays, for the most part, Labor Day is just another holiday and chance to relax and unwind from a busy month, which is still a great thing. But the point of Labor Day is as important today as it was in the past, as the divide between rich and poor, corporate and workers grows larger. Many economists, in my experience, most... (laughs) 
look at labor unions through a neoclassical lens. So neoclassical economics is, in other words, market economics, an approach focusing on the determination of goods and outputs and income distribution in markets via supply and demand. Now, listeners of this show will know that this is problematic in many ways, as it makes a lot of assumptions about humans behaving rationally, which really isn't realistic, such that neoclassical-driven theories have come under more scrutiny in recent years. Additionally, this approach always assumes that markets have full and perfect information, which we know they don't. We don't know everything about what's going on. And people and businesses will maximize their output always, which is impossible seeing as we aren't rational in this sense. So in this context, economists consider unions where the price of labor is a function of supply and demand. At common law, and this is mostly literature I found from the 80s and 90s, which was consistently taught at the university I attended and is echoed in academia and the media today, labor unions are recognized as cartels that are designed to raise the price of labor above the competitive level. It is theorized that unions tighten the labor market by advocating for higher wages and better working conditions. They are removing workers, the labor, from the market pool and therefore restricting the supply to increase the price. It is also argued that unionized firms become less productive, though I didn't find much data to support this or the alternative. Please let me know if you have any. The idea here is that workers have job security and older workers will crowd out younger, more efficient workers from entering new positions at a company. And that's what's supposed to make them less productive in this way. I think this is more code for older workers stay in jobs that we could hire more easily exploitable younger workers for. So the idea that unionized workers are, that unionized workforces are inefficient comes from the concept that labor is a competitive marketplace where the price of labor, wages, are set by supply and demand. But if successful collective bargaining sees an industry or a group of employees get wages higher than that market rate, well, this must have negative impacts on the market. So what is being negatively impacted? Unfortunately, when we talk about efficiency in economics, we are the vast majority of the time talking about the bottom line, profits and investments. We're not actually talking about the positive impacts of higher wages for workers, at least in this neoclassical sense, something I have talked about in previous episodes on income inequality. So when we are thinking about labor and labor unions in this way, it has been found that unionization is associated with lower profitability and investment rates when compared to non-union firms, especially when unionization rates are high. This is due to the fact that the majority of labor unions are rent-seeking, meaning they are wanting to redistribute wealth more equitably rather than, say, create more new wealth for workers to redeem. Now, some of the caveats of this study I am using is that profit is only measured for firms that have survived unionization of their workforce, and so it does not consider those that may have failed because of higher wages. And honestly, if a company can't pay its workers a decent living wage and maintain profitability, well, it isn't exactly a sustainable company anyway. Similar to this, unions are more likely to be organized in highly profitable industries, so the negative impacts on profits don't necessarily reflect the average business. But again, I argue if you are a highly profitable business and you can afford to pay your workers more than you should. 
cut overtly high CEO salaries or something instead of cutting investment by the study average of 20%. Yes, unionized companies have been found to invest about this much less in tangible and intangible capital compared to non-union counterparts. But again, as I mentioned at the top of the show, I don't think this is a result of unions alone, rather about company greed, weak legislation, and keeping the pockets of higher-ups well-lined. Productivity, for this episode anyway, is something I can only really theorize about and refer to anecdotal evidence. One thing that a union does is give the workers a unionized voice. So if a worker spots something that isn't quite right, in other words, seems inefficient, there is no fear in telling management about it to improve whatever process needs to be improved. Without a collective voice, many workers will say nothing out of fear and the inefficiency will continue. And we all know that inefficiency costs money. Higher wages are also known to make individual workers more productive as they have less financial stress, don't have to work a second job anymore, making them less tired and burnt out. And, you know, just feel like their employer cares about them as a person. This has a positive impact on productivity in the workforce. I feel like this is one of the main arguments of pro-labor union movements. When people are not paid a sufficient living wage, this cost is simply paid for elsewhere in the healthcare and justice systems, for example, but by taxpayers. Before we move on to the benefits of labor unions to both members and non-members, let's also consider an example of higher wages and their effects on turnover costs. Things that do impact profitability just indirectly. So in the US, the average worker at Costco gets paid $17 an hour compared to $10.11 at Walmart. 82% of Costco workers have health insurance and pay just 8% of their premiums. Well, less than half of Walmart workers do and they pay 33% of their premiums. So they've got a lower wage they're cutting out more of it to go towards their healthcare compared to Costco who get paid higher but pay less. Turnover at Costco is lower than the retail industry average at just 17% overall and 6% after the first year of employment, while Walmart is about on average 44% turnover a year. Knowing this and knowing that the complete costs, so considering everything direct and indirect of replacing a worker who leaves, is generally one and a half to two and a half times the worker's salary, we can calculate who actually pays more for workers in a year. Being very conservative, this example I looked at assumed that the cost to replace a worker is just 60% of their salary. If a Costco employer quits, the cost of replacing them is $21,274 per year, compared to Walmart at $12,617 per year. Right now, it seems like Walmart pays less, but we haven't factored in turnover yet. With a turnover rate of 17% versus 44%, Costco's annual cost to staff, annual cost for staff is $244 million, whereas Walmart's is $612 million. And I will post the article I'm using here in the show notes if you want to see the workings. Interestingly, Costco also has the lowest rates of employee theft in the industry. Treat your employees as you wish to be treated. So 
when it really comes down to it, when we consider indirect and direct costs to both the company itself and average workers, I think it is arguable that unions actually reduce profitability in the long term and overall. So what exactly is it that unions want? Well, it's pretty simple. Fair increases to wages, raising the standard of living for the working class, ensuring safe work conditions, increasing benefits for both workers and their families, more historically, no child labour. On the surface, I think that these are things the majority of the population would see as a good thing, nothing to be argued with really. A recent study from the Economic Policy Institute, a fantastic resource for information and data on income inequality, details how collective bargaining plays a critical role in our current labour market and how a worker's freedom to join a union and come together to bargain with their employer is under attack. President of the EPI, Lawrence Michel, was quoted in this paper saying, We will never again see consistent, robust, middle-class wage growth or a healthy democracy without first rebuilding collective bargaining. Also during this decline in unionisation, productivity has increased a lot, but the wages of the working have stagnated. Union decline can directly explain one-third of the rise in wage inequality amongst men and one-fifth among women between 1973 and 2007. And this decline has really been fueled deliberately by anti-union propaganda campaigns run by big business. Fortunately, now we are seeing a bit of a resurgence of people interested in collective bargaining, mostly from younger workers who want to resist the class system we live in today. Some promising statistics this research found is that labour unions are more diverse now than ever before, comprised of dental hygienists, grad students, digital journalists, manufacturing workers and public sector employees. Roughly two-thirds of union workers aged 18 to 64 are women or people of colour, which is great representation and also tells the tale of need in minority and underrepresented groups. When it comes to salary, a worker covered by a union contract earns 13.2% more per week than someone with a similar education, occupation and experience in a non-unionised workplace in the same industry. On this note, collective bargaining will eventually increase wages even for non-union workers as employers will have to pay more to retain their qualified workers or lose them to higher, fairer paying jobs. Interestingly, if union density had been maintained from its 1979 level, Non-union male employees in the private sector would be making 5% more than they are today. It may not sound like a lot, but if you are in a lower income bracket, a 5% increase can be life-changing. Factor in unpaid overtime, extreme cuts to workers' compensation programs, lack of healthcare and other benefits, plus a fall in the real value of the minimum wage, which is lower than 1968 levels today we're looking at a massive disparity in income. If pay had risen with productivity during this same period, as it did without question up to 1979, it would be 63.8% higher than today. I cannot emphasize this enough. According to growth in productivity across the board, workers, and I'm talking about workers, not corporate executives, 
should be getting 63.8% more each paycheck than they currently are. To put this into perspective, let's use a few lower income levels and see what they should be. The cutoff in Canada to be considered low income per year, so if you're accessing various government programs, is $22,133 for an individual and $44,266 for a family of four. Given the above, if productivity increases had been reflected over the years, these folks should be earning $36,253 and $72,507 respectively. This represents an extra $14,000 and $28,000 every year. And you can just imagine what this would do for people who are struggling particularly. Let's say you even had a bit of a higher income and made $50,000 per year. Still not a lot to get by on and pay rent as a single. You should really be making $81,900. For a family of four living on $100,000, they should be making $163,800. It's insane, honestly. And all this would do is mean people making $300,000 or more might make a little bit less. Redistribute from those who are making millions and leave the people making $300,000 alone. It's a sacrifice made by 1% of the population to benefit the masses. And if union density had remained, maybe this would be a reality and we would be living in a fair and equal utopia. Even still, today, hourly wages for women under a union contract are 9.2% higher than otherwise, on average. Black construction workers in New York under a union are earning 36.1% more than their non-unionized counterparts. And unionized work sites are also significantly safer. In 2014, inspections done at New York construction sites found twice as many safety violations at non-union sites than union sites. And health and safety is one of those things that some might easily see as red tape But when we know that in the US, over 4,800 workers are killed on the job every year and 50 to 60,000 workers die of occupational disease, well, rigid safety protections become essential to life. Tied into this, 94% of workers covered by unions have access to employer-sponsored health benefits compared to 67% otherwise, plus more access to paid sick days, vacation days and holidays paid overtime, more say and control over hours worked, and advance notice of work schedules so you can actually plan your life. Workers represented by unions also fare better later in life because of increased access to retirement plans. Almost half of all families in the US where the main income earner is an adult aged 32 to 61 have zero retirement savings, which is troublesome. By comparison, 90% of union workers have a retirement plan. Union employers are over 22% more likely to offer an employer-provided union plan and spend 56% more on retirement compared to non-unionized employers. So they're more likely to offer it to you and they're going to contribute more on your behalf. If you think back to the term collective bargaining, When a large group of people are represented as one, it is more likely that they can get better deals on retirement plans and health insurance like a bulk buy 
making it not only more affordable for each individual, but also cheaper for the employer, meaning they have the capacity to chip in a higher proportion. Now, this is all fantastic and well and good. Unions are great for you. But unfortunately, union membership in the private sector is just 6.4% of workers now, compared to 25% in the 1970s. Comparatively, union membership for the public sector, so think education, nursing, doctors, is 35% of workers. But overall, just 10.7% of US workers belong to a union, compared to 35% in the 1950s. And again, this is very much a result of anti-union campaigning, employer intimidation, and weak, unenforced legislation. It was found in this study by EPI that workers do still want unions, and almost half would join one if given the chance tomorrow. However, aggressive campaigns and lobbying have been successful in diminishing private sector union membership. And with less membership, a labor union has less money to do its work advocating and bargaining for its members and non-members alike. Even in unionized workplaces, employers illegally misclassify workers as independent contractors to avoid labor laws that protect employees' rights to safety, fair hours, paid overtime, vacation and sick pay, plus health and retirement benefits. This is something I've experienced myself, even in government positions, I know of so many instances where this has happened to my friends and colleagues who have been held in a position for over three years, are clearly an employee, but are kept on a rolling contract to save the company money. And okay, even if you are getting paid enough money as a contractor, it isn't exactly stable. You're always at risk of not having your contract renewed. This can affect your health insurance, your retirement plan, paying off any debt that you have. And this in particular can make it harder to be approved for, say, a mortgage, for stable housing for yourself and your family. Now, in theory, workers have the right to unionize and bargain with their employer as a collective. But more than three quarters of US private employers will actually hire union avoidance consultants to quash the union campaign. I'm currently reading the book Bullshit Jobs, and this is just such a good example of a bullshit job being a union avoidance consultant. These anti-union campaigns usually involve circulating information, warning employers that they would just have to pay exorbitant fees, won't actually get a new contract for years to get the raises and benefits they desire, as if the company has nothing to do with that. Even though the National Labor Relations Act prohibits employers to intimidate, coerce or terminate workers involved in union organising, Anything left off paper is hard to prove and not really enforced, so these laws can be easily avoided. Even where an employer might be caught, the fines aren't a strong enough incentive to not do this type of thing. Employers can also legally bar a pro-union worker from speaking at its mandatory meetings, meaning anti-union arguments can be made without rebuttal. That is just very undemocratic to not allow all voices a fair platform to advocate for their needs. On top of this, 63% of employers interrogate workers about supporting a union in mandatory one-on-one meetings, which can be incredibly intimidating. And a third of employers will fire their workers during these campaigns, rather than just give them an extra few dollars an hour. Seriously. From the 1990s to early 2000s, The likelihood of private employers using 
10 or more intimidation and other tactics in their anti-union campaign doubled. Even companies like A&W, who portray themselves as very wholesome and caring, monitor and quash any whisper of unionization. And I'm sure their workers are facing really tough conditions, long hours and very low pay. Anti-union campaigning and lobbying has even managed to be successful at the legislative level, which sets a disturbing precedent. The National Labor Relations Act allows employers to pass right-to-work laws that, in essence, ban contracts that require all workers who benefit from union representation to help pay for the benefits, whether you're a member of that union or not. So it creates a big divide between union members and non-members in the same workplace or industry. Because without this, non-members who don't pay dues will pay fair share fees in order to cover basic costs of collective bargaining as they do reap the benefits of representation. So stopping this, making it illegal, some members may choose to leave the union as they don't think it's fair that they pay all the dues while their co-worker doesn't, and thus the union has less financial power to do its thing. 28 states in the US currently have right-to-work laws enforced and they have all avoided large-scale unionization. This legislation has been introduced in America at a national level. I don't know where this proposed legislation currently stands. Now, I didn't look into other parts of the world. I think the US is usually a good example of what could happen elsewhere. Given that Canada, where I currently live, has similar problems with stagnating wages and inequality, and Australia, where I'm from, continues down its path to become little America in an abundance of ways. And in the UK, for example, union rates have declined by half over the same period I was talking about just before. I think something that has also played a role in the decline of unionization and stagnating wages is, of course, the global financial crisis of 2007. In the post-GFC period, workers had their hours cut and wages reduced or held because of the poor state of the economy. But nothing really changed for the average worker when the economy started to grow again. It's like there is a lot of leftover impacts that do not at all represent the reality we live in. And given all the speculation about another upcoming recession, I think this is going to get worse again for people who never had the chance to recover. For me, this episode just reiterates a lot of my feelings about income inequality, but I think it also gives more of an explanation as to how society was able to reach a point where executive salaries skyrocket while the average employers is in decline and more and more people are living below the poverty level in developed countries. Without labor unions, there is no collective voice. Without legislation that protects workers' rights and the right to collective bargaining, there is little to no room to negotiate a fair wage, fair benefits, and a fair working environment. So this Labor Day, find out if your industry has a union and maybe talk to a local rep if you feel like some of this stuff is happening to you. Just keep it out of the workplace to avoid nasty intimidation tactics. You do have the right to be dissatisfied at work and not want to be exploited and struggle so someone else can make more money than they need. That is a very human feeling to have. To end, a slogan from the international workers of the world. The only force that can break tyrannical rule is the one big union of all the workers. 
As always, thank you so much for listening. You can find me on Twitter at Every Economics and follow the entire network at Cave Goblins across all social media platforms. Check out our Patreon if you want to support us. We have shows going up every week and every month for just $1, so go and take a look and see if that's something you're interested in. Or if you want to support us in another way, rate and review on iTunes. Thank you again for listening. Be kind to each other. I am Talia Murdoch and this has been Everything Economics.